and welcome to this podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. It's the Archimedes' turn, where we talk about evidence-based medicine, how to do it, the problems with doing it, issues around it, mostly have amazing editing skills and superb little stings that will occur throughout it, and then we offer you the opportunity to take part, and loads of you have done from around the world. We've had submissions from Australia, from Hull, from Scotland, from Wales, from Italy, and even from England as well during this period of the pandemic. Now, what we're talking about today is nothing really to do with the pandemic, but I have to admit that the thinking about how we do evidence-based medicine was indeed inspired by bits of it. You see, sat here in me garret, staring out of me little window with rain and wind and cows, I have only the list of similarities to Virginia Woolf, but the space to think and reflect as the UK pandemic anyway moves on is an opportunity. You see, a common description of evidence-based medicine starts with, ask a clinical question. But this omits a step before it, which is, be uncomfortable with your knowledge. Being unsure is troublesome to most of us, and the global modification of how things are always done perhaps is allowing us to see questions that we didn't realise that we could ask prior to this. For me, the largest changes in clinical work have been in the, in the clinical encounter. What was face-to-face has now become mask-to-mask, or it's over grainy video or a crackly telephone. How much of the benefit of our medical care is actually delivered by physical proximity, by touch, by the ritual of attending clinic? And does this have a greater value in conditions which are less about replacing a a missing cell or an enzyme or or, or supplementing a protein complex and, and more about the complexity of living in the world, like tension headache, anorexia nervosa, depression? Could we even ask such questions in an EBM framework? Now, that's clearly a rhetorical question. Of course, we can ask them. They could be phrased of interventional in patients with Z of Y ages. Does physical versus video outpatient consultation lead to better satisfaction, uh, accuracy of diagnosis, adherence to treatment, disease-specific surrogate measures, or improvement in some other aspects of life? Or they could be phrased in an exploratory way. How do patients with Condition Z describe their experiences of consultation over video versus in person? And which aspects do they value the greatest? So it's it's not so much a, a, a can you ask them as a do you consider asking them? Educators for ages have urged us to work with those that we supervise to look for the teachable moment and use it to impart wisdom. Now, if we grasp this sort of the other way around, look at our of uncertainties as a way that we can do our own evidence-based inquiries, we could perhaps call those to ourselves learnable moments. Now, the first of our summaries of evidence comes from a team in Scotland, um, uh, Archis Kamath and Jakira Shetty, um, who, who are thinking from their outpatient clinic about a 12-year-old girl describing tight 
band-like headaches that occur daily. They affect her school attendance and her mood, and they've been going on for about eight months or so. Paracetamol and Brufen don't really relieve the symptoms. The GP prescribed Pazotafen. That made her tired out and didn't change the headache. And you go through taking a really detailed history, a thorough examination, and, and you don't find anything else, and, and you make a diagnosis of tension-type headache. The mum is keen to explore the value of alternative or complementary therapies in the treatment of this condition. So the pair went off and they searched extensively through different places, including Medline, Embase and the Cochrane Library, using those sorts of broad terms of alternative and complementary medicine, uh, looking at headache but trying to exclude migraine uh, and within our age range. Altogether, they pulled together 31 different potential hits and explanations for what was going on and then they read them all through and seven of them were relevant for the analysis in the end. Now this is one of those ones where where the, the data isn't astoundingly good as you'd probably imagine. They come from retrospective studies, before and after studies, just observational stuff of they're taking people forward. And really only one trial as such that was comparing self-help, which was nurse assisted on their own or therapist assisted, any of those things against an attention-based control or just a self-monitoring. Um, so these sorts of uh, elements that they were looking at and what they found was that that if you'd got someone to assist you um, in a sort of a relaxation training um, then it improved things in 70% of the cases if a nurse did it um, then it was 50% if you did it yourself it was only a third and compared that to the idea of just checking if you were all right only 2% of people got better so so some really good evidence for relaxation stuff being pulled together and then when you pull all the other things together, which has been done in systematic reviews, but, but the quality of those uh, underlying studies isn't, isn't great, is that they don't show any benefit really for other stuff, such as cognitive behavioural therapy or pharmacological type interventions. No real benefit from those things either. It's, it's a complicated area, um, but if you do use other things that are more physical, um, uh, electrodermal resistance and stuff like that, then, then maybe you see a benefit. But, but overall, most of these therapies don't have a vast amount of evidence behind them beyond relaxation therapy. There are a number of ones that have been used in the migraine setting as well, and, and there's a, a website, the Migraine Trust from the for UK, which has a, a series of uh, looking at uh, different types of therapies as might be helpful for migraine in particular, but might also flood over into the tension type headaches. Um, what what really does come through is this, regardless of whether they seem to have any um, meaningful benefit when, when looked at in these studies, they don't have harm associating with them. Uh, and so if somebody wants to try out a particular therapy, as long as it's not anything that sounds frankly dangerous, then it's likely that it won't hurt them, it might benefit them, and if it allows them to relax and get those muscles relaxed, then it may actually be beneficial. And if you have the resource, then a psychologist-directed relaxation training program that a patient completes is probably the best of the things that you could try and do. Mm -hmm.
Now our other one also concerns a teenager. This is a 14 year old girl with anorexia nervosa coming to the paediatric clinic. Been under the community eating disorder service. She continues to be underweight. Her percentage median body mass index is 82%. She reached menarche at 11 um, uh, but hasn't had a period for nearly two years now. Um, stopped when she was 12. Uh, a DEXA scan has showed a Z score of minus 2.8 in hip and spine uh, and as you'll remember Z scores sort of have a, a standardised way of looking at what is the average which would be zero and then minus low uh, and plus above that so it's really quite low. Uh, our parents in particular are concerned about bone health and, and should she start oestrogen treatment to reduce the risk of developing osteoporosis and so the team that looked at this which is Puna Zadea and Lucy Etheridge down in London in England uh, went away and they looked through the evidence again searching Medline, searching Cochrane pulling together the sorts of terms that you expect looking around eating disorders and combining those with estrogen spelt both correctly and in the American way um, and then looking at their effects on bone mineral density and, um, and health 263 were looked at uh, initially but none of them were directly reducing the list of osteoporosis because they don't look at long-term data so they're looking at sort of secondary things 25 were pulled out and looked at in detail uh, and then nine of them were pulled together um, for analysis within this archimedes of that um, there was there was one study which is a, a systematic review that pulls together two prospective cohort studies and four different RCTs looking at premenopausal women of all ages and so not just teenagers given a range of estrogen preparations or placebo or no treatment at all now what they found when they pulled it together was there's quite a wide range of different things coming through here and, and maybe not entirely straightforward. Now, even though that's a wide age range, what the authors note is that the majority of these women were younger, the median age, so 50% of them, um, at 17.6 years. So that's half of them less than that and half of them older, given the, the upper age range of 43, a much, a much skewed distribution when you go up in that way. The other trials looked at a variety of things, looking at physiological replacements or supraphysiological replacements, using oral treatments or sometimes using transdermal treatments to see if they made a difference. This has to be importantly stated within the setting of the treatment for anorexia nervosa is to allow and encourage the patient to eat and that the, the treatment for improving bone mineral density is food. That's not at doubt here. What, what this question is asking is, can we add to that with the use of external estrogens as well? And these are very emotive and very difficult areas sometimes to think about and look at. The clinical bottom lines that the group have pulled together after really quite serious thinking is that, well, we don't really know whatever we do, whether we'll make a really great difference to bone mineral density over the course of time. We do know that the best outcomes come if the patient can get better from the anorexia nervosa and have weight restoration and have uh, a diet that is sufficient for their needs and that that is the, the most important strategy to improve things for bone protection. 
Um, and that whilst giving the oral contraceptive pill style doses of estrogen really doesn't seem to affect even the short term markers and so it's very unlikely to make a difference, transdermal estrogels might, might benefit. And, and that's where that very difficult balance between how do all these elements play together uh, comes in. Uh, and if a treatment was really needing to be required because of all of the treatments had been exhausted, then that is the one that currently has the best evidence behind it. That is not in any way that these authors state uh, that all patients or that it should be the first line treatment at all. So the pandemic has made us think differently and it's made us think about difficult things. Difficult things often are very interesting in evidence-based medicine and often ignored when it comes to the critics of evidence-based medicine. Evidence-based medicine is not a religion, it's not a has-to-be-randomised controlled trials. It is about understanding where the evidence sits in relation to the individual patient, where the potential problems with that evidence are, but weighing that against the potential benefits that people might get from it. What these Archimedes is in this month have done, and I would really encourage you to read them this month, is they've really thought about all of those elements together to come up with bottom lines that reflect clinical practice, that understand the expertise bringing in from the clinical side, the patient's point of view and the patient's benefits. Also, weighing up evidence that is not the greatest quality in the world, but still coming to what seem to be sensible conclusions, bringing all of this together. If you've got a similar situation, then why don't you have a crack, you know, as you sat around waiting for something to open so you can go and spend some time two metres away from everybody else. Send in your Archimedes's, see what you can do. And, uh, and even if you don't get published, then the act of doing it for many of the people that even the ones that where we've declined to publish have commented that it has made them more interested and more engaged um, in the use of evidence in medicine so until next month thank you very much for listening and have a lovely time <laughs>